1: It's Better Customer Conversations with my friend, Tim Riester. How's it going, Tim?
0: Great, Joe. Thanks for having me here today.
1: Before we get started, Tim, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're at.
0: Yeah, so one of the things we discovered a long time ago is that a lot of products and services look, sound, and smell the same. And the real distinctive honestly, is the story you tell and how well you tell it. So our company helps people when their lips are moving in front of a prospect or a customer, making the most of that so that you, we like to say, win more than your fair share. And it's it's a unique thing to be in the business of salespeople with their lips moving, but it's a living.
1: <laughs> yep. And so the name of your company?
0: It's called Corporate Visions. And the name could mean anything, but in this case, it means better customer conversations.
1: Yeah, and the reason I reached out to you, Tim, a few weeks ago is I had read an article and it was fantastic. It was uh, all based, it was sales stuff, but it was all based in research. And I was like, oh my God, believe it or not, there's actual research out there on this. Because one of the things, and we talked about this when we were prepping, there's so much, you, you called it folklore around the, the the sales space. And you always hear things like always be closing, always do this, always do that. But then but it's not like other things where you go, Yeah, I can look and prove that or somebody's proved that out at some point. It's just what somebody said back in the day and we all just followed along.
0: Well it worked for them <laughs> once so it should work for you too. I call it unexamined folklore because it's just a lot of opinion, personal experience and really no data. I like to say that the world of sales and marketing is, is very theory rich, but data poor. And we aim to change that by doing original research, but we don't research necessarily the selling motion. We look into buyer's brains. So our world right. is what we call decision science, how people frame value, how people make choices, the invisible forces that shape a decision, and then teach people how to impact that.
1: Well yeah, by no stretch, we'd call myself an expert in sales, but I, I've done some training in the past, so I was a trainer. And one of the things that I've always kind of felt I think this is a mistake that many organizations make is they say, "Here's our sales process, rather than here's the buying process, <laughs> and we have to align ourselves to the buying process. And the Internet's a perfect example, is 30 years ago, no one could go on the internet and say, "I'm looking for a logistics provider." There was no internet to go on now they, you could call them and say, hey, we can do this, this, and this for you. And they go, that's cool. And they go online and see who else does that, <laughs> right? Or they might have been following you for six months.
0: Right, Th- that's the thing is there's so much do-it-yourself, self-serve homework they can do. And I always say, sometimes in many companies, your internet is more up-to-date than you are. And your your internet is more complete than maybe your own knowledge of all your products and services. So they can get better information from your website and then compare it to competitors websites. So when they finally talk to you, how are you going to add value? What's left? That's right. that's that's the real interesting moment now is not uh uh. what do I got? What value do I add?
1: Right. Before we get all the way into this, we're already getting we're already off to the races. Before we get all the way into this, I want to know a little bit about you. Where, where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school and give us some background, how you ended up uh, corporate visions doing what you're doing?
0: Well, I hope people care about this stuff, but I grew up in a tiny, <laughs> tiny town in Wisconsin, 638 people. Now I'm gone. There's 637. And it was in up near Green Bay, but a small little town that nobody ever heard of. People barely heard of Green Bay if it weren't for the Packers. And then I moved to Milwaukee, went to school. I majored in journalism because I was very curious about how the world worked. And then I went into business and I was hired as the first corporate journalist. So I wrote along with salespeople and going to customer installations and writing about their experience with whatever solution we had. So I did this for medical equipment companies. I did it for factory automation companies. So I was inside of steel plants and breweries and hospitals and hearing the customer tell me their side of the story. And then I'm sitting here inside these companies and they they want to talk about their products and their features. And I'm like, like, so I I came away with this frame of reference that – Companies are trying to force the customer to live in the company story, but customers live in their own story. And and we do better right. if we actually get into the customer story as opposed to trying to make them come our direction.
1: Wow. So you really, you, so you got to basically to observe the process and not be part, you were above the battle, right? You're well, above the I, fray. I didn't have the
0: I didn't have the quota. So I got to observe this very objectively, less emotionally, <laughs> and then begin to document how customers think and how they talk about their decisions. And then that put me on a trajectory of how to write better messaging, write better presentations, write better stories that that customers respond to. And then I, that opened up to me a whole world of the science of human decision making. So you can see how this all sort of built on it. But if it weren't for that first fortuitous job to be sent in the field, riding along with salespeople and asking customers their story... I. I might've missed this whole thing.
1: (laughs) So what was the next gig after that?
0: So I did some corporate gigs. Then I went on the agency side and started a division that wrote these stories for companies. So all my life has been around customer stories. And then I eventually went to a software company that produced proposals, generated proposals and helped to create, help companies who bought that software to put better content in there, better messaging. And I thought, that's interesting. And I started my own company where literally we went in and built sales messaging, completed proposals, built better stories, and helped marketing and sales connect to tell a better story. And that took me to my own company around 2004 to 2008. Then in 2008, a sales training company came to me who was doing sales messaging and said, we're peanut butter, you're chocolate. Let's put these together. Because if I teach salespeople better skills, they also need a better story. And the whole world changed in terms of, right, a great customer conversation is the combo of a great story and the skills. And that's where we are today.
1: Right. And along the way, I know if you're watching the video, you can see behind uh, Tim, he's got a, a number of books there. So you've written a few books, right?
0: written four books. And the best part is when you're doing continual research, you always have something else to talk about. A lot of times, if you're just write, writing one based on your own experience, you got, you got one shot. So we've written a number of books, but they're all revolving around the idea of customer messaging, customer conversations, and doing that in an acquisition sort of motion versus the expansion. So we, we look at it from a number of angles, but yeah, we got four books, all with original research in there.
1: Right. And so when you say acquisition, that means new customers. When you say expansion, that's that's growing your existing customers.
0: Yeah, fancy pants words, I guess. One is uh, new business development, winning new business. The other is keeping and growing your existing business for sure.
1: And when I asked you if you did any logistics business, because that's who's listening to my podcast, logistics, transportation, warehousing, you said you work with one of the biggest. Can you say who they are?
0: I can. They, they. In fact, their president put a quote on one of our books. So it's public knowledge. We do work with UPS. So working with their 11,000 salespeople, improving the story they tell and distinguishing them in the marketplace.
1: Yeah. And, and it might seem like it's shooting fish in a barrel these days at UPS because uh, we had so much growth in e-commerce, but that's not their only business. And by the way, there's, it's kind of common to talk about this these days. They, they brought on a lot of bad business. Everybody did with e-commerce. So they're going back and looking and saying, what makes sense? So it's not just shooting fish in a barrel over there. You have to get good business. It's Sales never ends.
0: It's very competitive. <laughs> but, you know, I'm not going to be able to say a lot about what they do or how they're doing it. But they're doing absolutely. it well.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and,
0: and, but to your point, all boats sort of rose over the last year and a half. And now everybody's sorting that out right and and even if the business you want how do you keep it and so it uh to me it's an interesting space because a lot of times there's just a couple basis points difference on price and it's a very you know we're moving boxes right and moving stuff so how do you tell that story how do you add some value beyond the obvious things that you and your competitors right.
1: do right right so Today's topic, again, is better customer conversations with Tim Reister, rhymes with Easter. Tim, what is one thing we can all take away? What's, what should we be doing to have better customer conversations?
0: Oh, one thing. So one thing I always say is that you should recognize the, I'm gonna to try to keep this really simple, the psychology of the person on the other side of your conversation. If they are a prospect and they are doing business with somebody else, They're in a place that I like to call, well, I don't. The scientists call this status quo bias. They're risk averse. They don't like uncertainty and change. So they're biased towards their status quo. And you have to know that your job to win that business is to actually disrupt that status quo, convince them that their status quo is no longer safe, smart, sustainable, scalable, acceptable. But if you are the incumbent, you are the status quo bias. (laughs) <laughs> and your job is to reinforce that, defend that, put a moat around that. And so what I like to say is the first thing you need to know is that your story and the skills you need are different. You need to be a disruptor and a defeater and a dislodger to get new business. You have to be a reinforcer, a defender, an expander to keep you and grow your existing customers. And that's a different sort of approach. It's not one size fits all.
1: Right. You know, in, and when we talk about transportation, logistics, warehousing, I always say it's a big catch-all business, right? And anything that supports the supply chain. A lot of times they just say once a year we go out for bid or once every two years we go out for bid. And so they, they might have a status quo, but there's always this, the incumbents definitely have an advantage. But sometimes, especially when you talk about trucking, you sometimes wonder, does this even make sense for us to get involved? Because they have incumbents, and they just might be market-testing prices. Maybe they have no no desire to leave their existing incumbents. They just want to make sure their incumbents didn't raise the prices unnecessarily high. Yeah. And there's a lot of people who feel like some – a lot of trucking companies. I've heard the term bid fatigue. Like, oh, f- it sounds great to most people, great, I have another opportunity to bid, I have more opportunity to win business, but it feels like, what's the chances of I'm even going to win RFP business? So RFP is a reality in our business. How do we deal with that? We, By the way, we hate it sometimes, but we know it's important to be part of them.
0: The necessary <laughs> evil, right? And you, you don't always know if there's some underlying drama or trauma going on. So you're like, mm, maybe this is that time. Well, here's what I would say. There's actually no risk in swinging for the fences when you get called in late to an RFP. The data shows that you have less than a one in four chance of winning that. In fact, 80% of finals presentations usually go with no decision and stick with the status quo. Like this is, those are bad odds for the amount of time and effort these things take. And the only way we've seen to improve the odds in your favor is you have to lodge or launch some sort of surprising, unconsidered set of needs that they have to rethink their status quo. If you just fill in the columns, what you got to do in order to pass go, you can't collect $200, right? You got to fill them in. But you got to open with like the executive brief or if you get a chance to talk to them at some point, you got to posit something surprising, interesting, unexpected, that like gets in their head like an earworm so that as they're looking at this set of columns where everybody fills them in with full moons and half moons, and they're right. like, you know, a, more or less, they're all the same as what we got. And now let's just see if we can move the price around. What good is that? I'm, I'm here to tell you that stop doing that unless you're willing to, to launch sort of a, a frontal assault and get them to reconsider their options. But that requires you to bring a little something surprising, different and right. unexpected to the table.
1: It's surprising, different, unexpected. This is is a need they didn't know they even had until you told them.
0: It's a need they didn't know or an opportunity they were missing that they didn't realize. I'm like, either way, there's potentially some cost or loss to them if they don't rethink this. A lot of us want to paint a picture of potential incremental gain you might get with us. People are not willing to move for potential incremental gain. They only move if they think there's a loss or a cost associated with keeping their status quo. And your job is to lob a few things in <laughs> that get them to
1: rethink that. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting. I've used this analogy sometimes with, if your son or daughter said, hey, there's a monster under my bed or in my closet, you go and you go turn you turn the light on and go, nope, see, n- nothing there. When somebody's looking, potentially they think, hey, there might be an unmet need in there, there might be. And it's your job to go in and say, Oh, oh I'm not going to, I'm going to walk in here and say, Oh, yeah, there is a monster here. You had no idea how big it is. <laughs> Let me describe it to you. It's going to kill you if you don't do something. And it's, you're, you're trying to, it, that's the way of, of being interesting, of being different, is having something, bringing some, some unexpected need or, or opportunity, right?
0: Yeah, people are worried like, Oh, I don't want to be a little dark rain cloud that brings the bad news. You have to think of it this way. Your job is to help them, make them feel smarter because they met with you, not make them feel stupid right. or not make them feel like you're the same. So those are the three S's and you got one good choice. Don't make them feel stupid by saying, I can't believe you're doing it this way. Right. And you don't want to make it feel like it's the same because then there's if there's no difference. Nobody's going to take the risk of change to get more or less the same. So your goal is to make them feel smarter. And I always say that, that. you know, they're in their business and and you're in in yours, you're the expert. And the problem with going in and asking them what do they want and what do they think they need is they got their list to compare. And and you should be going in there and saying, hey, we work with dozens of organizations that look just like you. And here's what we've seen. Here's some things we've witnessed. Here's some surprises, some gotchas, some leaks and some squeaks that have been unexpected and we've helped identify and plug and resolve and other companies like you are doing this. Can we talk about how you might compare? And I always say like the best way to surprise or get someone to indulge something unexpected is turn them into a voyeur. When when you say we work with a dozen companies in your space or your category and we've learned a few things and we want to compare you and give you some ideas and insights, they go, hmm. You know, like, like right. you see, more,
1: you, you see more what is my than, competition doing? <laughs> right,
0: right. So uh, that's the thing I'm worried about. The thing I know I have to ask about is because I do this business and I have to ask you for that. The thing that scares me, the thing that might cause me to rethink my status quo is the thing I didn't know, the thing I didn't see, the thing I might be missing, especially compared to my competition. And you're not naming the competition. You're, you're sort of aggregating that insight, and you're giving them a few interesting, unconsidered needs that others like them have found surprising and were struggling with. And all of a sudden now, you're adding value beyond your website.
1: Right. I love what you said about making them feel like you're not bringing the same. You're not bringing, making them feel stupid. You're making them feel smart so they can go back to their boss and say, hey, the reason I'm considering this new company is because... We can get this, 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 and this. And it's not about you being the hero. It's not about you being great. It's about them being great in their own, because they're all there to save money and improve service. And they're not there to say, hey, I found a new logistics provider. That's not their gig. Their gig is to, to, to improve their business. Right And impress their boss. (laughs)
0: Well, right. If it were up to them, they won't get a new provider because it's hard. They've invested in onboarding. They've invested in systems integration. They've invested in nomenclature process change. You think about it. There's a high switching cost, a high change cost. And so if they don't see there's a cost to staying the same, they're not going to take the cost of change. Right. I always say if you're going to get the more or less the same, nobody changes for more or less the same. You have to show some contrast. Because in this contrast is where they perceive value. And that's right. usually in introducing those things they didn't expect.
1: Yeah, I'm an old ops guy. i worked in engineering and manufacturing and you know, now logistics. And I would also always say that we're risk adverse. I don't want risk. I don't want the risk to cost increase. I don't want a risk of service quality. I can't afford risk. That's So ops guys go to work saying, I need to reduce risk. And then this guy, Tim Reister, shows up and says, hey, I've got something brand new. And all I hear is risk, 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 <laughs> risk. Right. Right. And, in, in, and unless you can, to your point, say, I'm not going to make you feel stupid. I'm not going to make you feel like I'm bringing something the same. I'm going to make you feel smart. And I say, oh, maybe this is a way to reduce cost and improve service and add more value. And now I'm not, it's not a risk.
0: Well, right. Now the risk is staying the same. You've transferred the risk. You went from the risk that. The risk of change look too great. If you make the risk of same look the same or greater, now they go, oh, you know what? Now I can entertain this discussion because I'm, I'm standing on a pile of shifting sand here.
1: I love it. Yeah, you've, 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 you've introduced that potential that you're, you, you stay the same, you're losing.
0: Right. The status quo is now risky versus the change. Exactly. Right.
1: So you mentioned this whole idea of being a voyeur and saying, hey, we work with dozens of organizations just like you. And I know when we were prepping, I mentioned having a niche. And I'm, I'm a big believer that it helps to have a niche or a niche, if you will. And you had some interesting ideas on that. Speak to that for me.
0: Well, the value of of having some sort of a niche is this idea of having a level of expertise. Like I said, we see more people who look like you than you do. And through that, you've developed some insight. So that expertise that comes from that domain knowledge that you can translate into insight and share with them things they didn't know, didn't expect, and they see themselves in because it's based on similar folks. So the idea of of a niche, I always say, is you want to find a hill you can win on and you want to make sure that's where you drive them to that hill and that's where you plant your flag. And usually that comes from a place where you've developed a level of expertise. You can translate into insights and then insights make people feel smarter. And then it's a virtuous cycle.
1: I like that. I like that. And, you know, one of the things, again, contrasting this to pre-internet, pre-internet, you worked with the local logistics company because they were the only ones who knew you were around, right? So they, they would call and say, hey, we've got trucks and we have logistics expertise or warehouse or whatever, and you're down the street, we can work with you. Now I'm competing with the Internet. I'm competing with everyone nationwide. In fact, there's a lot of logistics salespeople outside the U.S. selling to us here and selling U.S. services from wherever. And that's great. But it just got a lot harder. And in the olden days, pre-Internet, I could pick up the phone and say, Tim what do you do? And you say, I I work in retail. And I say, I specialize in retail. And as far as you know, I do, right? The next guy I talk to, yeah, I specialize in manufacturing because nobody knows there's no internet to, to check me, right? Now there is internet. So if I say, Tim, I specialize in retail, you're on my website probably while we're talking, right? You're looking and saying, yeah, it says they specialize in retail. I don't even find the word retail on their website. So I think it's important that you pick some niches, and say, I'm going to commit to that and even create content on it and those insights that you just talked about.
0: It's either a niche by a category or it's a niche by a capability, right? Like you are the expert in rail or over land or right. oversea or whatever it is. Because somewhere what you're trying to do is gain an advantage, a knowledge and insight advantage over the person on the other side so that you're making them smarter and they feel like I need you because right. I don't know that. And you know, even for our company, we say we are experts in in B two B decisions. So we don't do retail and consumer sales, real right. estate, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's the B two B buying cycle, and it's primarily in these categories: considered purchase, complex sales cycle, multi decision maker. So, anyways, I, I think it's where can you find a, a mass, a critical amount of expertise that that's the circle you then draw. And the thing about internet and what's on the internet, this is this is one of those things where often the people in sales don't control their internet or their website, sorry. So you, you just got to figure out what you can do and the value you can bring despite what might be there. Now, unlike you, Joe, I don't admit that I was pre-internet, even though I was. <laughs> because I don't, I don't want to damage my street credibility, you know, that, holy cow, this guy's Fred Flintstone or something. But it is different. And those of us who, and I think, probably in the logistics industry. We've got some tenure, had to modify our approach because of the disruption of the self-service of the DIY of the internet. So I think it's it's good advice that we're talking about here.
1: Yep. So, so we talked a little bit about this, that when you're bumping up against an RFP and, and also bumping up against status quo, that is for kind of acquisition business. Now you talked a little bit about expanding uh, business with existing customers. Talk about that and how it's different from this idea of expansion or of acquisition.
0: Right. So we did some research on this because what we found out is many of the companies we were working with, seventy to eighty percent of their number that year was going to be keeping and adding more ser- services and products to existing customers. And they started asking us, "Is there a difference? Is there a uh, should we take a different approach?" And and we were like, "That's actually a really excellent question." So. Around 2017, we started doing research in this area of existing customer retention and then upsell cross-sell expansion. Lo and behold, what we discovered is that the the psychology of status quo bias is true. But when you are the incumbent, you need to reinforce that, defend (laughs) it, and expand on it, not be so disruptive. Like the, the little hand grenade that you lob in during an RFP to try and win some business, that's the opposite of what you want to do here. Because you don't want to disrupt status quo bias when you are the status quo bias. So the mindset in an existing customer, what we discovered, the thing that helps you keep and win more businesses, you have to be great at documenting business results, outcomes, impact that you have provided for them. And you have to document the investment and mutual effort that everybody's made because there's two scientific principles here. One is anchoring. You want to anchor them on the positive movement, the positive trajectory, so that people are scared they might put that at risk if they change. Right. And then the other scientific principle is called sunk cost. You want to show them the investment that everybody's made to build the systems and put the process in place, make the changes, adopt the nomenclature. And then what you want them to be thinking about is, if I change now, holy crap, I got to do that all over again.
1: Right. And so there's,
0: now all of a sudden you've built, we call it the incumbent advantage. Your customer's not keeping track of that stuff. So you have to actually bring that back to them and say, we've been documenting the kinds of results and impacts and outcomes. And we've also documented the person hours, the time, the investment, the effort on your side and our side. And as we look toward the future, working on this together and potentially adding these other things, you start there. So you place this firm anchor with sunk cost. And and now you've significantly improved their willingness to do more and the next thing with you than if you just came in and said, Here's a bunch of new stuff I want you to think about. And they're like, Oh, wait. Right. If we if we gotta change that much, I might as well re-examine my options. So protect right. protect and leverage your incumbent advantage very deliberately, as opposed to hoping that they just think fondly of you.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, it's 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 interesting, Tim, when you think about you get a brand new third-party logistics provider. And uh, they will always show you, hey, you remember we came here and we saved you this much money and we did this, we improved service. But one of the things you you touched on there was time, the investment in time and money. And people are so busy all the time. I I think the biggest problem today, it seems, is when you talk to people, they don't have time. And if you say, God, remember, remember when we started, Tim, God, we spent so many long hours getting us up to speed on your business, and then us telling you about our service. And remember that we spent some long weeks and months getting us situated so we could have Systems the success talking
0: to each other. <laughs> right? And, I mean, you, you, you. you and and just, then the
1: guy goes, "Oh my God, I can't right. do that again. I don't have the I don't have the bandwidth. I don't have the people.
0: Nobody's going to say it out loud, but it, this is part of what we're talking about here. This is the psychology of decision making. I would even take it one step further." Hey, when you made this decision, remember the due diligence you went through? Remember the number of partners you examined? Remember the number of people in your company you had to rally to get consensus? Like it's just, it's, you want them to take re-ownership of the previous decision because sometimes the decision makers have left. And you want to sort of reassert, you did your homework, you did your due diligence, that was hard too. And then talk right. about all the stuff you've done together. And you just do that in a consultative way. It's sort of like a little business review recap. It's not like some like pounding a stake into their heart. It, it, it could be a natural flow of the conversation, but we have found psychologically that it does something powerful to your existing customer, which is solidify their status quo bias.
1: Yeah, that's that's interesting. And, and as you talked, I was thinking about uh, sometimes large shippers will ask me for advice on picking someone. Sometimes they'll say I I'm angry with my 3PL, I want to leave them. And my first my first words out of my mouth are always say not so fast. Please don't do that yet. Let's let's figure this out. Let's see what's broken and if we can fix it because fixing the existing situation if generally speaking it's okay or it was okay, let's fix that. Rather than take all this risk, and so I'm bringing as a consultant, uh, sometimes that status quo hold up. And again, I'm I, I'm an ops guy. I, I my feeling is when as soon as we change, there's a chance that it's worse. <laughs>
0: right? Yeah, so, they, they, when in this concept of status quo bias, there's four reasons people don't change their mind. Four causes. One of them is anticipated regret and blame. So you, as the ops person, is like, yeah, it's not perfect. It's not. All great, but I'm not dead yet. If I make a change, that could kill me. You know, right. so you're you're always weighing like the regret and the blame. Like, eh, yeah, there's some problems. Yeah, it's not perfect, but holy cow, I can't even imagine making that change. And and as the incumbent, you're trying to continue to solidify and and trade on that mindset. Now, we probably don't have time, but we've done all kinds of research on the best way to apologize for a service problem in a way that improves loyalty even more so after the apology and the problem than if you never had a problem in the first place. Can you give us the the
1: short version of that?
0: So the short version (laughs) of that is that the main thing is how you document your recovery. And people don't want to hear how sorry you are until they hear how you restored the perceived lost value. The main thing, the do not pass go, do not collect $200, first thing in an apology is This was a problem for you, and we see this is how big a problem it was. Here's how we plan to restore that lost value. And now we're going to tell you what the problem was, how we found it, how we're rectifying it. And at the end, you exit the apology by going, and we are really sorry about that. As a partner, that shouldn't happen, and we're doing everything to avoid that. Most people want to open with that apology. And what I'm saying is people don't want to hear that. The first thing they want to know is, and there's the science of that is called justice theory. And, and they perceive that the balance of fairness is out of whack and you have to restore the balance of fairness. And, and then you can go on with your apology. And, and so we have a very specific framework of how to order your apology, your <laughs> documented apology message that we tested. And proved. And that people came out of it more likely to keep working with you, more likely to keep recommending you, more likely to buy something additional from you by using a certain apology framework. And, And at the end, I can tell you where to find that on our website.
1: Right, and you know, in the logistics business, especially in this last year or so, Ooh, yeah. you, you, when <laughs> apologies a big part of the business. Yeah. But when you when a when a truck was supposed to pick up, and you organized to say, "Hey, that truck's going to pick up at your place, Tim, today at ten p.m. to ten a.m. or whatever," and they don't show up, and then they they bailed, they found a better load, and to your point, it's really easy to go, "Hey, Tim, I'm really sorry. Let me uh, let me look for another truck. I'll, I'll get that picked up here soon." Even though you said you're, were, I said I'm sorry. I don't have a solution for you yet, and and it might be more expensive. <laughs> Likely, it's going to be more expensive. That's why the other guy bailed. So I might have to come back and say, I, first off, I'm going to have to call you at 10 a.m. and say sorry, didn't pick up. I don't have a solution yet, but if I could, I would definitely want to call and say, guy didn't pick up at 10, but there'll be somebody there by 11 that's not always the, that's not necessarily the easiest thing right now. You, you've got to make the call sometimes before you have the solution. When I manage a logistics company, I would always say the same thing. If there's a failure, call with the solution and then right after, you know, we, we'll make the apology, but I want the solution. And don't, you don't ever want to call and say, hey, we screwed up and we're sorry. They're like, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa! (laughs) How are you going to fix it? Right, right, Right. (laughs)
0: And and then and it's not just like fix it. I might have lost four hours, and that has a perceived value to me. So I think going in and saying money too, right? So you got you know what it looks like is we're going to find someone to back you up, and that could take two to three hours. And what I see is that's about a four-hour delay for you. I don't know exactly what that costs you, but I'm going to assume it could be X. And one, you're not going to pay extra for us to have to find somebody on short notice. We'll absorb that. And they would expect it, but you should say it. And the other is, there's a way we're going to make up that four hours to you. Uh, We're going to keep you whole. So that's what I don't want you to worry about that cost of those four hours. There you go,
1: I love that, I love that.
0: That's what it means to restore the perceived loss value, not just fix the problem. In fact, fix the problem is the second part of the apology. The first part is, know that I've lost value and tell me you're gonna fix that eventually or you got an answer right now. And then tell me, here's the problem, we fixed it. Here's the redundancy we put in place so it doesn't happen again. And then, sorry, sorry, sorry.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I always remember I had a customer and he was relatively new. And I remember we had a failure less than truckload didn't pick up and it was going to close, da- uh, probably not close down, but inconvenience a location. So he, this guy called and called me every uh, name in the book, but none of them good. And it was a new customer. And I said, and I said, don't worry, we're going to, we're expediting that right now. And he goes, jeez, oh God, then, you know, because it. It, I, what I didn't say is I'm paying for the expedite. And he was able to kind of unleash another round of uh, insults at me. And I said, no, 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 we are uh, we we paid for the expedite. It will be there at the same time. Don't worry. <laughs> and, he, and and then he goes, well, I've just been calling you a lot of nasty names for nothing. And I remember he laughed and I was, thought it was good. But it, part of it was my own fault for not making it clear that the expedite was on us and right. no no cost no interruption to service i didn't say that fast enough <laughs>
0: and yeah but that's a You gave them a window for expletives. So <laughs> right. that, that, the scientific uh, explanation is uh, shut the window for expletives.
1: <laughs> but right.
0: I think, yeah, it's, a, it's a, it's an interesting lesson learned. And, and some of these are counterintuitive, especially in the heat of moment. So that's why we test them and document them so that there's maybe a discipline or a rigor that you can fall back on so that the emotion of any of these moments doesn't, doesn't carry you off into a bad spot.
1: Right, and again, I love the, I love what you guys have done with actual research because again, this this is a space that really lives on old wives' tale or folklore, as you call it. And you know, one one last thing, and I, I know we didn't talk about this when we we're prepping, but I heard somebody say this is a business of failure. Most of the things we do, so if you were in a factory and you said I make a I make wheels for cars, there would not be a ton of failures at the end of the day. There would be. We were supposed to make 1,000 wheels and we made 1,000 wheels. In sales, there's tons of failure. We reach out to people and nothing happens. They say no, or they don't answer the phone, or they don't answer our emails. How do you reconcile that? What do we do with that?
0: Well, that's probably a whole nother podcast in terms of <laughs> managing failures. I mean, somehow in, in, in many sports, like baseball, one of my favorites, on average, people hit the ball one out of five times, one out of four times and they miss the rest and and that's still considered and that that same that number by the way has been the same for 100 years of baseball statistics. Yeah, a 300 so,
1: hitters killing it, right? <laughs> right.
0: And so you you look at it and you go it, it, it's it's less about the failure and more about is there anything I can do to make sure that that failure isn't anything I could control? And and at the same time, then add some incremental opportunity wins and improvements, and and so that's that's what we see is that there's gain. So if we say status quo, we go to a company and no their no decision rate is sixty percent. If we can move that down to like fifty five or fifty percent, company wide, it's millions of dollars. And and so again, we are. This is not a cure. This is, this is the opportunity to move certain things and have an outsized impact by making these changes. So reframing your story differently for expansion versus new acquisition, that's going to give you like maybe a 10 percentage point. So I'm, uh, which is not a hundred percent close rate. It's not even a 70% close rate, but if you go from 25 to 35 it's going to be a bonus. So we're seeing that kind of thing, close rates, deal sizes, margins, margin protection, right? I mean, that really can have a huge impact if you save even a couple basis points, right? And just some simple techniques, sorry, I could go on and on, but just the simple technique of making sure you put the first number out there, not your customer, so that you can negotiate down (laughs) versus negotiating up. And then you give yourself right this don't be the first, you know, don't let the customer put the first number out there. And, and it's like, uh, just, just anchor, just be willing to anchor. Don't be afraid. That can be a game changer. So these things are also not, I got to do 80 steps, you know, right. I, I just got to right. do a thing or two different and you can, you can make some, uh some nice adjustments right the, the winning golfer and the losing golfer or second place are separated by precious little. Right. So how, how do you find that stroke?
1: Right. So, Tim, let's wrap this bad boy up. Give us some final thoughts on better customer conversations.
0: Well, the final thought is, is that you should know the difference and the psychology of the buyer and that you should use that in your favor. Acquisition, be disruptor and expansion, be a reinforcer. And the other thing I would say is recognize that the story you tell and how you tell it is the difference maker. So put right. time into put time into that story and put time into developing your skills to tell that story in a way that is is different and remarkable and memorable.
1: I love that last piece. Say that one more time about this tell stories.
0: The tell stories piece is that uh, and I'll give an example. There's on, there's been data to show in the, in the poker, the world of poker, online poker. They looked at 103 million hands of online poker. Only 12% of the time did the best hand win. 88% of the time, the best player won. The way they bet, the way they bluff. And so the best hand, the best product, the best service doesn't guarantee you a win. The best player wins. And I think it's the same in sales. And in, in the, in the vernacular of selling, it's the one with the best story who tells it best. So right. spend the time to be the best player. Stop your whining about whether or not you have the exact best product because that doesn't guarantee a win.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's interesting what you said there because so, so much of the business is all in this logistics, transportation, warehousing. We bring in lots of young people right out of college and say, you make 100 phone calls a day and tell them we'll uh, reduce their costs. So tell them we got trucks, tell them we have the TMS, whatever it is. I don't think we work hard enough on those stories. And I think in a lot of times, I've talked to a lot of young people, they aren't being told necessarily a good story to tell. They're not being trained right. in that. And so when they call, they're like, first off, they, they don't know the business very well. <laughs> they don't know, they don't have a niche. So they don't even have expertise or insights as you want them to. And no wonder there's a failure rate. I mean, it's, 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 yeah. it's, it's predictable in your mind, right?
0: Absolutely. I, I think you have to, Build a library or populate some of these conversations with some of these nuggets that that will help somebody deposit a little insight or lob an insight grenade in and 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 open that discussion right. up. And and too often people are satisfied with their first take on a message or a story or a value prop. And I'm here to tell you that more than likely it sounds the same as everybody else. You, you actually have to work a little harder at it. And you know, we've done work with banks and banks who lend money. I don't care how commoditized you think your business is, you're not a bank. And if you lend money at a higher rate than somebody else, that's a struggle to sell that because you're both selling a dollar, yours is a dollar three, theirs is a dollar two. That's a hard sell. And and we've helped people distinguish their stories, even in what I would argue is the most commoditized market of them all, which is Money. And and it really comes down to being able to make somebody smarter on the other end. Do I have a minute I can tell them a story, Joe? Or Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah.
1: Please do. Please real do. Real quick.
0: So one of the things we found out is when banks would sell a line of credit into a small business, they would say, I've got money at a competitive rate. My bank's been around for 75 years, so you can trust us. Well, there was an era when banks could be around 125 years and still go out of business not too long ago. So years of experience didn't matter. Competitive rates, anybody can negotiate and money is money. So the bank we were working with, we taught their frontline salesperson, usually a young person to say, you're interested in a line of credit. I heard, did you know that 42% of companies that take a line of credit and use it during some difficult times still fail? 42%. That means like almost half. One and two who take the money. So we don't want to just give you money and watch you become a statistic. What we found out is those companies who fail have three basic problems underneath that they didn't realize were there. Our bank will come in. We'll do an assessment and make sure we're not throwing good money after bad and you don't want to do the same. We're going to look for those three underlying sort of problems that, that... Mask themselves in good times, but reveal themselves in tough times. So let's figure this out together. Now all of a sudden, does does money sound like money, and does the price of that money sound the same? No, I'm going to protect you from a one out of two failure rate. And so, and that was just like think of that talk track, right. how fast that was, and think of how now you cannot unhear that forty two percent. And now you're wondering why every other bank is just talking about their rates and how long they've right. been in business. And you're like, these guys just made me feel smarter. And that was like two sentences long. And uh, it follows a little framework we call data insight question. Share an interesting piece of data that's unexpected. Give a little insight as to why that is. And now begin asking them questions like, so how confident are you that you don't have these three underlying problems? And how comfortable are you that if you took a line of credit, everything would be okay? And now those questions aren't even just open-ended, what keeps you up at night? They're very pointed and very focused on that insight that you gave. So data, insight, question, not question, question, question. And just a quick tip for everybody there.
1: Yeah, I love that. And and you know what? I also like what you're talking about here, Tim. I know, and we'll, maybe we'll switch, switch gears here and talk a little bit about what you guys do over at Corporate Visions and who you serve. But what I like is your work with companies on messaging because so often I feel like you have marketing and they make create some sort of message. But a lot of times the marketing groups don't have the opportunity to get with the customers as much as the sales guys. And it always seems as if there's a divide between sales and marketing. And I think too big a divide. And I I think we don't have good messaging. We don't have good stories. And in this business, it is so often very commoditized. And so what you did for that bank, we need to do for our, our our companies here in the logistics and transportation space. Because there's a lot of come UPS was one of them that said this in the last year or so, we're going to have better business, not necessarily just bigger. Because it's so easy to get business that isn't profitable in this business too. Because we based everything on cost. So...
0: Right. That's the thing that we might have to unwind a little bit. And then we just have to be smarter about the story. I always see, I I give this analogy. Anybody, there's a documentary out there called The Movies That Made Us. And they look at some of these movies that were made and what happened. And one of them was on Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump came from a book that nobody read. It was a, nobody read it. It was a poor, I I didn't. Yeah, it it was a poor seller. And, and you could put Tom Hanks and have him read that book and it wouldn't have been a great movie. Somebody had to turn that into a screenplay that people right. attached to that made an emotional connection that allowed a great actor to be great. So the book, your products don't magically sell themselves. A great actor can't necessarily deliver it. There's this thing in the middle called right. a great screenplay. And that's what most companies are lacking is that engaging, emotionally impactful and, and well-told screenplay or story that allows your sellers to, to be great. You can't just give them the book and say, "Come on, our our company's great." <laughs> so,
1: Tim, we were supposed to be wrapping this up, but I still have another question, and you just kind of hit on the emotional piece.
0: Hang in there, everybody. <laughs>
1: I, I I um I always feel as if you know when I look at my own decision making. If I go to the grocery store and I buy stuff, if I was to question myself, is why do I buy generic baked beans, for instance, but I don't buy generic mustard? Right? I don't mustard's mustard, right? It 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 kind of doesn't make sense how I make my purchasing decisions. And yet I think when I'm selling to someone I act as if they're being very rational. But reality is they are making lots of irrational decisions. And I think part of the reason they make irrational decisions is sometimes a really good story can convince them that it connected somewhere in the brain and you said, Yeah, yeah, you know what? What Tim said it hit me. I love it. I like that guy.
0: <laughs> you know, there's that, that's a whole other podcast on the power of story and the power of emotion in decision-making, even at executive levels who claim they want an ROI and a TCO, and they claim they're rational and logical. <laughs> we have studies with real executives that prove they are just as emotional as every other decision-maker. They just don't want to admit it. That's because the emotional decision-making happens in a part of the brain that doesn't have the capacity for language. The capacity for language resides in the rational part of the brain. So when we tell you, here's what I'm going to need, we say things that are rational. But we don't know what we really need, which is something emotional and intuitive to convince us that change is worth the risk. The the logic is used to justify, the emotion is used to to make the decision. So it's a it's a whole study in the brain science of decision-making that some of our books contain, but it is fascinating. And when you know it, it actually, you can use it to your advantage.
1: Excellent. Excellent. So now, now we're officially switching gears here. So tell us, who do you guys serve? Who do you work with and what do you do for them?
0: So I snuck it in earlier. It's, it's business-to-business companies with a sales force where you still require a sales force with their lips moving to help sell your stuff. Right. You know we don't do e-commerce and and that kind of stuff. We don't do branding. It's, we build messages, put those messages into presentations or other forms of content for your customers and for your sellers, and then we train them on the skills. So we are the stories and skills companies uh, company to help you build better and deliver better conversations. And it's, again, B2B companies with a considered purchase or complex selling cycle and where every day you're trying to dislodge an incumbent or expand an existing customer. And those, those are generally in professional services, technology, and manufacturing. Again, things that cost a little more, that have more consideration in the decision, that's where you find us.
1: And and again, I think you should point out, since we talked about it earlier, you do work with logistics companies like UPS, so you understand. And again, this is sometimes an enormous purchase. And it's going to be, you, you could be selling to mom and pa one, one shipment a week, but you could also be talking about hundreds of millions of dollars a year in spend. So
0: right. Working with someone who's walking up and down a strip mall, trying to convince somebody to take a number with UPS to somebody who's doing strategic accounts with Walmart. Th- th- yeah, we're engaged in all those.
1: Excellent. So do you have a sweet spot?
0: Our sweet spot are really, I'm just going to say like salespeople with their lips moving. If you have salespeople who have to represent, that's our sweet spot. And it's both professional business services and technology related products and services. Those are two real sweet spots.
1: And I love the fact that you guys combine the sales training, which everybody wants sales training. Everybody needs some sort of, you know, What do I need to do? But also the messaging, because I feel like we send people off out of sales training and into, yeah, you need to to do the following, but they aren't necessarily experts at coming up with messaging and stories. And that's where they could use some help with that too. So
0: Well, when people say make it sticky, they're like repetition or make sure the managers reinforce it. I'm like, "Mm, the way you make a skill sticky is by patching a story on it so that they have something to tell a way to use that skill. So it's a way we think of that distinctly.
1: Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. And what I'll do is I'll put a link to Corporate Visions uh, website here and I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile. And any you have links, maybe you give me a link to your books. Anything, any link you give me, I will put in the show notes.
0: You got it. I, I appreciate it. I, I get excited about this. I hope those listening found it just as exciting as I do because I find the, the human decision, the study of human decision-making to be interesting and a game changer for those of us in sales.
1: Yeah, you, you nailed it. I'm going to listen to this podcast over and over again because I really like what you had to say about the the difference between the incumbent. You know, when you're the incumbent and when you're trying to disrupt. I love that the expansion versus the acquisition. I guess you call it, but I love that and I like the the whole idea of of linking these stories and these messaging with the the, the sales because I feel like they're 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 too divided. We need those
0: yeah it's it's uh I always say if it comes down to a good conversation, it's skills plus stories, and you can't have one without the other. Hence the peanut butter and chocolate analogy I gave you earlier.
1: <laughs> exactly. We,
0: we must master the story and the skills and and really that's what a great uh, poker player does. They tell a story with the way they bet and the way they bluff, and they have skills with the way they interact and and it's a winning combination, stories and skills.
1: Thank you so much, Tim. I really appreciate you taking the time today.
0: You got it. Thanks, Joe. I appreciate you inviting me on a podcast uh, where it isn't about sales, but it's all about sales.
1: (laughs) Yep. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, Onward and Upward,
0: You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.